and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. If you're a parent, you've probably imagined or dreamt of the horror of losing your child. For most of us, it's a fear that comes to the surface in nightmares or in kids' A&E. But thousands of parents in England each year lose their children because the state decides that they are not fit to look after them. And the pain and suffering that causes can echo down the generations. Polly Curtis is a journalist who began investigating how we break up families when she was working at Tortoise. And she's just written a book about it. Welcome to The Bunker, Polly. Thanks so much for having me. Polly, we have to be honest about the class dynamics here, because I guess relatively few Bunker listeners will know someone who's had their their child taken away but that does not mean it's very uncommon does it? No it doesn't at all and actually if you look at the kind of widest category the number of people who are referred to social services it's one in five children across the country so actually we probably all know someone who's had some kind of brush with the system but being referred to social services is a very long way from having your child removed. At that point it is absolutely a class-dictated system. You are so much more likely to have your child removed if you're poor than if you're wealthy. You're less likely to have the tools to negotiate the system if you're poor than if you're wealthy. And a lot of the effects of being poor are actually seen as a reason to remove children as well. So when you look at the number of children removed for neglect, actually, it's quite hard sometimes to distinguish the line between neglect and poverty. How many kids are removed from their parents each year? So at the moment, we have a record number of children in care. So it's 80,850 children at the last count last year are in the care system. Some of them will be removed permanently, a smaller number, so there are about 3,000 of those children every year are permanently adopted. But others will be returned to their family or other family members at some point. But that number has never been higher. 80,000 children is the highest it's ever been since the current records began about 30 years ago. When I started researching this, I just wanted to understand why that was. Why have we got to that point? And also, why do we do this in, in a different way to a lot of comparable countries? So the number of children adopted without their parents' consent is higher than in nearly every other comparable country. We do that that a lot more than other places. So I just wanted to understand what, what's going on here. Where does this happen? Because there's a big geographical distinction, isn't there, between some local authorities, lots more kids as a percentage get taken away. What patterns do we see there? So it is absolutely a postcode lottery. And different councils have different rules. So there will be some councils where if they find a bruise on a baby, that child will be automatically removed or heavily investigated at least. Others, they will ask many more questions first. So the geographical spread is is wildly different. If you, for example, Blackpool has a rate of 210 for every 10,000 children in the care system. Wokingham, by comparison, has just 24 for every 10,000. And the correlations between the wealth of the local authority and the number of children in care is really, really strong. That's because poverty makes it harder to parent. When I was at Tortoise looking at this, I did some work looking at the data around that with their data team there. That was really revealing. It showed that there was a strong impact of poverty 
there was a weaker impact according to ethnicity. There was an impact from the level of council funding cuts that happened in, in the area. But actually, a lot of it is really hard to explain by any of those things. And what you'll hear about if you are social workers who have worked in many different councils is that there is a different culture in different areas around intervention. There was one particularly interesting study I read, which was kind of counterintuitive. It actually found that there was a higher rate of removals for poorer people in rich areas than there were for poor people in poor areas. And that might be because there's more resources to actually do that. But it could also be culturally, it's more shocking to see people in contrast to the wealth around them. So it's it's a really mixed picture, but it's very stark that your child might be removed in one area of the country for something that they wouldn't be removed or you would get more help for in another area of the country. One thing I just want to say that I think is really important when I start talking about this is I am in no way opposed to children being removed in the right circumstances. I actually think it's the most difficult decision and it's the biggest responsibility of the state to help children who are in terrible, terrible circumstances. So, you know, in no way is my book arguing against removing children. It's just questioning whether we're doing it for the right reasons, in the right way, at the right time. And that's where I find kind of our society really wanting in terms of doing better by the children who need help. Talk us through what happens when a parent is suspected of neglecting or ill-treating their child. Ultimately, that may end up in the family court. But what happens between someone expressing a worry that the child has been treated badly? How does it then go from there to the court? It can happen in lots of different ways and it very much depends on what that first referral says. You know, if the first referral says, I know a child is being abused in X, Y, Z ways, it will trigger a faster or more intensive response. But there's lots of different ways children can be referred. I had my own very brief experience, which I write about in the book, where my daughter had had an accident where she had kicked over a cup of tea and burnt her feet really horribly. It was one of those classic toddler, first child, kind of absolutely horrendous situations where you end up in A&E and you, you think you've done the worst thing, you've broken your baby. And um, it was it was really a horrible situation. But about two weeks ago, a social worker knocked on the door and just said, we just want to check that everything's OK and came in. And what I could discern from that conversation was that I had also, being the terrible parent that I am, missed a set of vaccinations for her. And so the combination of these two things had triggered a kind of, is this kid okay? And my reaction was to feel very kind of like, why are you coming in my house? And and but I I immediately made myself think, well, actually, this is really good. This means that my local authority is checking in, looking out, and and the social worker really put me at ease and didn't make me feel scrutinised or you know, and and you know was clearly satisfied with what she found, and I never heard of it again. So it can it can start in lots of different ways. What I think is one of the reasons why we've seen this escalation in children going into care 
is there's both a push and a pull factor. So so the, the first is that we've widened the categories of abuse. So 20, 30 years ago, we didn't remove children for neglect or emotional harm. It was for physical or sexual abuse. And now all the growth has come in in that emotional abuse and neglect. And that's absolutely right, because we know that neglect and emotional abuse can have really devastating impacts on children. All the neuroscience that's come out around attachment theory and the importance of those early years really kind of points to that. So, so that's absolutely right. But at the same time, we haven't developed really good tools to support families to do better. And if people experience neglect and emotional abuse themselves, they won't know how to not do that necessarily for their own children. And we haven't developed the right policies and services to support those families to do better. Plus, over the last 10 years, you've also had a stripping back of the services that do exist. And on this point, I just want to kind of get the nuance in there because absolutely austerity has stripped back what's available. And you can see that really clearly. Social workers say we haven't got the tools to help parents. And so we kind of just drift towards a care process. I met mothers who had their children removed because their mental health was really bad, but they hadn't been offered anything beyond CBT to deal with it. So there were very clear kind of children being removed for a want of a service. So from the outside looking in, we can say, oh, we removed a child from a dangerous situation. Now they have people looking after them properly and they can make a new start. But does it feel like that to the kids? I think it doesn't feel like that for the kids. It doesn't feel like that for the wider families either. That whole idea is really, that rescue narrative is really based on adoption at a very young age. And we know the older the child is, the harder the adoption can be. And I think what I really found is that in so many situations, there is a kind of full stop put on it when the child is permanently removed. The state has done its intervention and now the child is with a safe family. And I think more and more we're seeing a real challenge in adoptions, particularly for older children. And I think the internet has a huge impact on this. You know, 20 years ago, an adoption was a closed process. Now it's very difficult to stop a child who knows their parent's name finding a way to contact them as soon as they possibly can. It's really difficult to do. There's not really any such thing as a closed adoption now. And adoption is actually changing. And more and more parents do, birth parents do maintain some kind of connection or contact with the children. But we kind of have this idea that it's a kind of clean slate. But it's not. Kids bring all of that with them. And the parents left behind also hold all of that trauma with them as well. And you see a lot of repeat patterns of mothers being brought to court repeatedly to have children removed because what else are they going to do once they've lost a baby? And so I think the idea that there are neat endings to this is just not right. And that's quite a poignant thing you say at one point in the book. They don't want to be separated. They just want their parents to change. And that really, really struck me. 
because I remember feeling feeling similar things. You know, I think lots of people have felt similar things about their parents. You know, that they may be they may not even be happy at, at all, but they they just want things to change. And of course, once the child is gone, things can't change. Mm, that's right. I think the tension there is that the accusation has been over the years that we've left kids too long, tried to preserve those links too long, given the parents too many chances to change. Changing is really, really hard. It's really, really hard if that's all you've ever known. And then the kid just bounces around the care system or lives in an unsafe home. So that's why I don't think there's a golden age to go back to. We need to develop really good interventions, really good social work that can make those most difficult judgments as best as possible. What was most telling to me was the one little girl I met who lived with a foster parent and I spent some time in their home with them. And the foster mother was really um, just an amazing woman, really lovely, so caring and really wanted to ram home the point that they were a really normal family. She kept on saying, we're a normal family, we're a normal family. And this little girl just very quietly looked at her foster mother, saw her and said, we're as normal as it could be. And I think that's kind of the highest praise for the system. There are no fairy tale endings. Something is always lost when a family is separated. There are always consequences. And it's just a very difficult balancing act between the harm that we know about that's happening in a family and the future risk of harm of separation as well. Quite often the reason for a child being taken away is because a man, sometimes their father, sometimes a man in their mother's life, is violent and then the child is taken away but the mother is the one who is basically punished. Does the system pay much heed to fathers? No. I think there was a lot of evidence I saw that essentially saw fathers as a problem or an absence or irrelevant. I think that that's wrong because in those situations you will miss the potential risk of that father, like happened with baby P. The man who came into the house was missed because all the focus was on the mother. But um, you also miss the potential of them being able to help. Each chapter in the book is the story of a different person in the system. And, and the dad I spent time with describes that feeling of being a complete shadow, like a ghost. He described himself as a ghost in his, his son's life. And that his girlfriend, they were a very young couple, his girlfriend was being investigated by social services. All that He had only been asked one question, and that was, do you have a criminal record? And when they removed the child from the mother and went for adoption, he said, hang on, I would really like to care for my son. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I'm really young. I don't necessarily have an income, but I'd like to do it. And he met a great social worker and a lawyer who supported him through that and became a great dad. And I think the tension is that in so many of these stories, there is domestic violence, there's drug abuse, there is dysfunctional relationships. It's much easier to focus on the mother because the mother's usually the one who's just there, but is also the gateholder to engaging the father. So it's harder to make contact with the father if you're a social worker. But from that child's point of view, and this is where you have to kind of like really put yourself in the child's point of view, both those parents matter desperately. And the less we spend time kind of focusing on the dad, the more pressure that puts on the mum as well. So, you know, 
these are all about interfering in the most sensitive of human relationships um, and very difficult to do, but, but should be done. You were able to see a little bit of the workings of the family courts and that's extremely unusual because normally the family courts are a completely closed box it can't be reported you don't attend unless you are actually involved in the case but you were able to witness some of what was going on via zoom what's been the effect do you think of that incredible secrecy around those courts because well you can understand why it happens obviously it's very important that these things be confidential But what effect does it have when no one sees the way these systems work? So actually, it's it's even more frustrating than that in some ways, because you can attend any family court hearing. A journalist has a right to attend any family court hearing. You just can't report anything that you see. So it's more frustrating. You see these incredible stories unfolding in these courtrooms at the sharpest point where state meets families and you can't tell those stories. So the effect of that, I think, has been a real lack of scrutiny of the whole system. It's been really hard to tell what's going on. And there, there are good reasons for that. The anonymity of these children, like they have absolutely every right in the world not to be splashed across front pages. It's you know a precious right. But in other contexts, reporters can tell sensitive stories like we're victims of sexual crimes and it's navigated really well. But the secrecy that surrounds that means that that it just makes it harder and harder to see these things are happening behind closed doors in people's homes in parts of society that people in power don't often want to look at either and then in a legal process that operates in in such secrecy actually there's some really big changes coming there a journalist called Louise Tickle who was a great supporter of this book and who has been a, a brilliant colleague to me has done a lot of work reporting in the family courts and campaigning, really. And there is going to be a new leap in transparency in the family courts. And I think that will really open our eyes to it a lot. When a parent realises that their child may be taken away, understandably, they may very well be desperate. And increasingly, they've been turning to WhatsApp, to Facebook, to online groups to try and find support and help in their efforts to keep their kids. What kind of advice do they get in those groups? So at the kind of most extreme end of this, there are people advising how parents can flee the country to places where the social services won't be able to reach them. I went and met a man in the south of France who has taken it on himself to run a website dispensing of this advice. And it's, you know, it's, it's, I, I totally understand the impulse to run. You know, if someone's going to remove your child, I, I can, I can understand that fight for it. But it very, very rarely helps the situation. They can never come home. There's often siblings who get left behind. It's, you know, it's just a huge mess. And I think the other hidden part of this is that when children are removed, you know, for for really, you know, all the best reasons in the world, there's very little aftercare for parents. There's very little services to support that parent in how they take their life forward. And I think that's a big gap that just stores up more problems for future because what usually happens is just a horrendous downward spiral yeah I, I think any of us could if our child was taken away I don't you know yeah. it's, mentally it must be so hard to deal with and there's so much shame 
You know, it's being a failed parent, being told by the state you're a failed parent and that you don't have the right to parent your child is just so laden with horrific shame. It's very difficult to recover. And another side of this is people becoming distrustful of social workers because they are the people who make the preliminary decisions, certainly about whether their children, the children should stay with their parents. And so there's a lot of ill feeling, isn't there, now towards social workers as a group? Yeah, and that's that's where the kind of structures of social work are really, really creaking, I think. In the public's mind, you have one person who gets involved at any part in the process and then ultimately might end up in court prosecuting to, you know, to have your child removed. Actually, social workers should be involved at a much earlier stage and without that kind of threat involved. I compare it to it's like you've just got an A&E service rather than having public health, GPs, A&E consultants, surgeons, you know, rather than having a different service for each part of the system. In really, I think, and this is austerity linked, we've got a service that is just focused on desperately trying to save children at the blue lights emergency ends. So there is no early intervention. There is no support for families. We were talking before this about trying to get SEN support for our own children. And a lot of people feel that social work should be the same, that actually it should be a resource that you go to when you're struggling with something to try and get help. But they're so closely linked now with with that court process that that really breaks down the trust with communities. I sat in rooms in community meetings where someone introduced themselves as a social worker and and the whole room booed. And it was kind of good-natured, but, you know, that is what it feels like to be a social worker. And really good social workers can overcome that and build the relationships, but it's an uphill battle. And you talked to a lot of people for this book, but was there someone's story you encountered that gave you some hope for the future, that things could work better than they do at the moment? So what gave me hope were all the people I met. And what gave me hope is that as a reporter, every time I've gone into a different subject and reported, it's always absolutely driven by controversy and division. Actually, I've met very few people who think we're doing the right thing. And what surprised me was the level of consensus and this idea that we are removing children before we've done everything we can to support a family to stay together. And as a consequence of that, actually getting to children too late because we haven't had that time to build up a relationship with them. I think most people really agree that that's kind of the key problem here. And what we need to do is shift the spending, the billions of pounds we're spending on this huge care system into early intervention and support for families. Most people agree that that's where we need to get to. So so I found hope in that kind of, it's not a consensus, but actually, you know, near consensus that that's what needs to happen. And then in just some of the amazing people who work in the system, the parents who have done the most incredible jobs to turn their lives around and to then put all their energies into trying to make this better. There are amazing people. This is not a failing profession. It's not a failing parenthood. It's not, it's not about failing people. It's about failing systems. And that gave me hope that things can get better. Polly, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Behind Closed Doors, Why We Break Up Families and How to Mend Them by Polly Curtis is published by Virago.
Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you liked this episode, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back the bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofronievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.